Hey everybody, welcome to the Lex G Podcast. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, one of my idols and heroes. I'm going to talk about Sylvester Stallone. And in particular, I'm going to talk about Rocky V. Um, and you might ask, why Why Rocky V? Why not a lightning round? Why not do the whole series? I'm sure I'll weave the other ones in and out of it. But I've been watching Rocky V a lot lately. It's on Prime. I enjoy it very much. I think it's underrated. It never gets a very good defense. And even Stallone himself doesn't like it very much. And I believe he said that he made Balboa, or one of the reasons he's very proud of Rocky Balboa. He considers it the best movie he's made, um, at least as a director, I think. But I would not agree with that at all. But he loves it, and he says that it's because it was sort of a makeup to the fans for Rocky V, which is universally hated. And I've always been like, I'm surprised for a couple of reasons that I'll get into why he dislikes it so much. I know why fans don't like it. First and foremost is it doesn't really have much boxing per se, none from Rocky. And it ends with this ridiculous street fight in an alleyway with Tommy Gunn played by Tommy Morrison, who's fantastic in the movie, but I'm going to get to all of that in a moment. But I wanted to tell you uh, that last night, you know, just this is related to this i put on the family stallone which is his new reality show and um you know i thought maybe it would be like a wall street kind of thing where i could watch this and goof on it wall street being the mark Wahlberg reality show that i did a, a podcast about about season one where he tells you about his sorry he tells you about his branding deals and his his businesses and his kids and his great life and his catholicism and it's very it's just so worshipful of of Mark Wahlberg <laughs> and it's made by him. And I thought, well, maybe family Stallone will be, you know, obviously the play on Sly and the family stone, it's a reality show. And I, but I had a feeling I was like, you know, I know he has these three daughters who've been trying to kind of get into show business. One of them cameoed on his show, Tulsa King. There was just this random, very cute girl who worked at the bank who he gives a horse to. And she kept coming in and out of the show for no other reason. And I was like, wait, is that one of his daughters? And it was. And one of them, I believe it's Sistine Stallone, was in uh, the Shark movie sequel. There was the first one was 48, whatever 48 meters down was, it had a sequel um, the first one was Mandy Moore. The second one was these three girls. And one of them was, uh, I believe, Sistine, who's sort of the, I don't know, she's the, I believe she's the middle sister. I could be wrong about this. And then there's a third one. I think the, the youngest one, I think, is the one who was on, it doesn't matter, dude. But there's a reality show, and it's about Sly's life. And I think, I wonder how many, like, old school Stallone fans <laughs> got duped into this. Like, there's a lot of, like, four, who's, like, the audience for Stallone anyway? Like, 40 45, 50 year old meatballs who grew up with them like me. And just knowing the format and having to work on so much reality TV crap for my job and knowing that his daughters want to, you know, they have sort of show business designs and they're very much, I mean, they seem age in age similar and look similar to the Kardashians or the Jenners. And sure enough, the show starts out and I was like, I know this is going to be a scam, but I did picture like some old you know, Goomba who loves Rocky too and can quote the Carl Weathers. Damn rock. What's the matter with you? <laughs> there is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. Like that guy who's probably my age was like, wait, wait, look new Stallone show. And he puts it on thinking like Stallone's going to give you a little insight into Stallone and his, and his show and his life and everything. And for five, not even five minutes, two minutes of it, it's Stallone on the set of Tulsa King, which is a show I liked. If I can, I didn't do a Tulsa King, uh, podcast but it's a show where Stallone is like a New York gangster he gets sprung from jail after 25 years he comes out west to Oklahoma and ends up taking over 
Um, it's sort of like, have you ever seen the hot spot with Don Johnson where Don Johnson's the drip? Everyone remembers it for the Jennifer Connelly nudity and for other reasons. But my favorite thing at the beginning of that movie is Johnson is so sleazy and he's sort of this drifter from nowhere. And he, he comes into the small town and to become the used car salesman, he just comes onto the lot and just, he doesn't work there. He just like shows up and just sells a car. And it's sort of like that slow just walks in. He's like, Hey, what's this? And it's a dispensary run by Martin. Star and he comes in and takes over the business and sort of becomes the Walter White of you know it's similar to that in some ways to the Breaking Bad arc. There's a little bit of irony I thought in the fact that like weed is legal now and it's sort of who cares and no big deal and yet he still kind of gets into this criminal underworld and that show Tulsa King I think it started out kind of witty and Stallone is very funny at that fish out of water thing and playing off his his image and everything. And I was with the show, but I, I had this thought about it. Like it's, it's the show, you know, it's Taylor Sheridan and he's sort of synonymous. I'm sorry. Uh, Taylor Sheridan is sort of synonymous with uh crime, this, you know, crime stories sort of amongst the backdrop of rural America or the heartland or the border. And you see it in a lot of it, like he wrote Sicario. He did Helen, hell or high water. Very good. But he certainly, he definitely has a shtick and he's, he, he's the Yellowstone guy. And now two or three spinoffs of Yellowstone. He certainly has. Um, and that's fine. Cause anybody who does, who's a big writer like that ends up with sort of their own milieu or backdrop. That they have to a lot of, but he tells these stories of like, the criminal underworld in sort of a middle American setting and Yellowstone being his magnum opus is probably the uh, foremost example of that. But Tulsa King started out and I was like, okay, this is the Taylor Sheridan thing. Stallone as this kind of goomba gangster from New York. He comes to Oklahoma. He's going to take over the drug trade. And that's very much him. And it was also Terrence, Terrence Winters, one of the writers and one of the probably EPs, I assume. But he, he's on that show, too. And I thought, well, this will be an interesting dynamic of two big voices of Sheridan being this this one type of crime story and Terrence Winter coming from the Sopranos and the Boardwalk Empire, which I've never, I've never, apologies to the one dude on my feed who never lets up about Boardwalk Empire. I have never seen it. The fact that the guy's name is Nucky and it bothers me. I'll probably never watch Boardwalk Empire. I'm very sorry, but I do know, you know, Terrence Winter and Taylor Sheridan. And I thought, well, those are the big guys behind the show. And so Family Stone, Stallone, starts off. And within under a minute, Stallone's letting you know who's making this show. He's, like, directing. And I, there was a thing on CBS last year that was pretty good. He did an interview from Tulsa on the set of that show. And he was throwing his weight around. He could see, like, all the crew was sick of him. And that's kind of a, a notorious Stallone thing over his career is how he's taken over so many of his movies. And if you look back at vintage Stallone, you know, there are very few. You know how you look at Arnold? And this is not to disparage Stallone's output because he's my, one of my heroes, a lot of my favorite movies. And I think as a director, he's great. And it was probably his great instinct that he knows how to write for himself. He knows how to direct himself. He has a had a certain visual style in the 80s that was I thought was very distinctive and almost painterly in a way. But um, there are very few huge auteurs who've made Stallone movies. And usually, even the very best ones, you're looking at like a Ted Kotcheff, and no, you know, dis John G. Avildsen, and no disrespect to any of those guys, George Cosmatos as directors, but they're not like you. You know, you look at Schwarzenegger, and he had the, you know, the idea to put himself in the hands of a James Cameron or a Paul Verhoeven or a John McTiernan um, or a Paul Michael Glazer, um, and trust them and their artistry and everything. And Stallone sort of notoriously would take over movies. 
Tango and Cash was the big one because it had this director who had made the Coca-Cola Kid and Runaway Train and was seen as sort of a festival Russian serious upscale director. He made uh, Andrei Konchalevsky, I think his name is. And he's, he's still the credited director on that movie, but the rumors were that he, that he didn't really... That Stallone kind of threw his weight around on it and someone else, the guy who did Purple Rain, did some of it. And I found out many years later, Nighthawks, which is kind of my favorite Stallone movie, it's very gritty, it's very New York, it's very 1981, it's reminiscent of the French Connection, and it's Stallone, it's Billy D, it's uh, Rutger Hauer's Wolfgar. Like, I can watch Nighthawks. Sometimes I have watched it like 30 days straight. I put it on at night just to relax too, and there's that part in the disco, which is my favorite scene in any movie. I remember like my mom wasn't big with music, so maybe why she liked this movie so much is it envisions like disco of 1980, which was kind of already on its way out. And the movie was filmed in like 79, 80, but by the time it would have come out in 81, disco seemed a little long in the tooth but uh they go around to discos where they're playing like free ride and they get to the main disco and they're playing rolling stones and billy d and stallone as deke de silva and i love his names and all his movies they're cruising around the discotheque and they're looking for rutger howers at plastic surgery wolfgar he's like this international terrorist and someone had a funny line in a book like if terrorism really worked this way the world would be a safer place because on the off chance just on the off chance wolfgar this Carlos the Jackal kind of guy might come to New York. They've already, they've already got all the world, all the city's best police detectives and cops and beat cops on a special task force months in advance in case he gets plastic surgery and in case he moves comes to New York to start shit. They're already wait, lying in wait for him, but they don't know what he's going to look like. And Sloan's got this little chicken scratch drawing and they're playing Brown Sugar in the club, <laughs> like the great disco anthem Brown Sugar, uh, which sounds so good and like. Stallone looks so cool. He's got the beard. He's got the big hair in that one. He's kind of got the the Barry Gibb or Loggins and Messina hair. And uh, it's a great look that he should have brought back for other stuff. And he's looking at this chicken scratch thing. And they, they're going around looking at various blonde guys who are jamming out to the stones. On the <laughs> streamers are falling from the ceiling. And uh, Stallone's like, what if I did this? <laughs> he's like scratching off the guy's beard and adding new hair. He's like, couldn't he look a little something like this? <laughs> he has a drawing that basically looks like Kurt Cobain. Bane from 1993 when he was on SNL and Billy D's like yeah I guess so why Deke he's like cause that is standing over there and he gets a staring contest with Rutger Hauer while this strobe like you could have nothing in a movie more exciting than a strobe light disco and they play this like jammed out version of uh, I'm a man by Keith Emerson and it's all oh it's so awesome and then by the way, I'm, I shouldn't be talking about Nighthawks. We got to get to Rocky Five, but like Rutger Hauer moves out of the way and Stallone full on blasts a, a, a bystander in the back. No, no, no. Stallone ducks. It's even worse. Rutger Hauer like starts shooting off in the disco and Stallone, like an asshole, jumps out of the way and a bystander catches one in the back. And this is ne- that guy, whoever that is, is never mentioned again. I just feel sorry. The world's uh, sorry as Nighthawks extra. Anyway. The story there was that, like, one, the guy who did the black hole was going to direct that, and then Stallone directed a few bits, and then Bruce Malmuth, who's this director who also made Hard to Kill, and there was a terrible movie with Frederick Forrest called Where Are the Children, where Jill Clayburgh's kids get menaced by Frederick Forrest. It's very bad, but Hard to Kill is very good, and he made Man Who Wasn't There with Steve Gutenberg, one of the 3D movies from 1983, where still, uh, Steve Gutenberg uses his invisibility to spy on the girls in the lady shower. Where'd I get to that? How'd I 
like it's oh because Bruce Malmuth was my idea was like he's not like this enormous director there's no Stallone movie that's well I'm sure you can pick through the filmography but you get a lot of like Rob Cohen and this guy and that guy who were perfectly fine journeymen um the Marco Brimbella you know what I mean you see what I mean Rennie Harlan I guess would be one of the bigger you know, at least action auteurs, I guess you could say. Uh, he did James Mangold. In a way, he kind of gave James Mangold a leg up there because Mangold had done heavy and then Stallone... I'm doing like an unofficial Stallone lightning round here. What was my point? Oh, my point was he tends to be the predominant voice in his shows and in his movies. And in Tulsa King, um, you have these two legendary... or not legendary, modern masters of the crime story here in Sheridan and in Winter. And you think, well, Stallone, how is he going to fit into this world? And for about three episodes, that push-pull is very interesting of the New York stuff and the Heartland stuff. And the, you know, sort of like Stallone having a pretty good sense of humor, playing on his image. There's a little bit of irony to the show, like I said, about the fact that it's about this weed culture that's completely above board now and not really, you know, an outlaw scene. And the idea of Stallone taking over this and trying to negotiate it all like this East Coast, you know, player from back in the day. Very funny. And then like three, maybe four episodes in, if you guys have seen it, you can remind me, but like. Then it just turns into Get Carter. Like, it becomes obvious that, like, Stallone was antsy with, oh, what's, all, what's all this character development? <laughs> and, like, this great little story about him trying to rebrand himself. And he has a, this kind of fetching little romance with this uh, federal agent lady who kind of puts her, it puts her in the awkward position of having to cover for his antics and stuff. And everything's moving along at a nice kind of relaxed pace. And then he goes home to New York or something and gets a phone call. And he hasn't seen his daughter in 25 years. And she's got a story about how she was sexually assaulted by one of the guys in Sly's old crew. He's like, well, I can't have that. And he's like, he just goes to the, to the, to the uh, social club and beats the shit out of everybody. And that reignites old vendettas with him and the guys, the gangsters in New York and the other parts of the show that were very interesting up until then, they were all fine. I ended up liking the whole season, but it became obvious halfway that it just becomes a Stallone fest. It turns into his remake of get Carter. If you remember that, like that's the Michael Caine, the classic, the original Mike Hodges and uh, Kane in that movie is great. He has this bit, this deal where he just points at someone to intimidate him, to intimidate them. And it's so terrifying. And that's what uh, I took away from that. Stallone took away making it the 2000 Get Carter, which I think is kind of underrated. It's very rainy. It's very overcast. And it has um, Alan Cumming in and Alan Cumming somehow went back in time to be Jeremy Strong in 2000. It's if you watch him in that movie, I'm like, wait, they had Jeremy Strong in 2000. He's doing like a bizarre, like a proto version of him. And Mickey Rourke is a criminal underworld. Some guy in my feed pointed out, like, what's the mix idea in this movie? He has an inner, this is like 2000, so like this is when like the 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 bubble, the internet bubble, the boom, the Y2K era, and he wants to have a caf, a computer cafe where everyone sits around watching porno. It's like, how does that work? It doesn't seem like the the most uh, the most uh, you know f- uh, fortuitous place to sit there watching your porn. It would seem to me you'd want to be in a more relaxed environment if you're going to want to whip out your laptop and your 2000 era webcam porn, but. Uh, that's something to do with the plot in that movie. But it's pretty good. There's a scene on a roof with Rachel Lee Cook where Stallone is very paternal and she talks about have her rough upbringing and being abused. And she's very good in that scene. And Stallone is fantastic. He has this ability, as he does in all his Rocky movies, to have this very paternal instinct, to be kind of motivational in a way that it's a little cheesy, but he's he's so good at it and so 
even though he's kind of there's something comical, and this has always been what I love about Stallone is he's kind of like automatic comedy, like how ridiculous he is with the voice and the physique and the the, the Italianness and the hair, and he's such a meatball, and yet he has an ability to write himself as this underdog, and that's maybe why it's so much for the best when he writes or directs his own movies because he understands, like Clint Eastwood he understands his own mythology he understands his own high points and what he brings and when to lay it on and when you can push it and when you can you kind of reel it back and that's one of the geniuses of the Rocky movies a little bit the Rambo movies too is that he can always take himself back to the beginning and you fall for it every time you buy it every time the first four kind of they mirror the arc of what Stallone was kind of going through in life you know because he wrote it as very semi-autobiographical it's kind of probably in some way you know what he was experiencing in Hollywood and with his wife with his marriage or his family which you know what do I know about that but to bring it back to family Stallone which I'm going to say Stone every time it just cracks me up that like this family gets the reality show. It's like remember Clint did this a couple years ago. Like he's a hundred, so you can kind of talk him into anything. And he had some new dingbat daughter. I say new, but she's probably twenty five who wanted to be on TV or wanted to be a reality star. So they they roped Clint's family into doing some sort of Clint reality show, and it was the same deal where. Um, I just thought, you know, because Clint had that first wife, Maggie, you know, and this is maybe one of the more Catholic, judgmental, moralistic riffs that I have is like, I always have this, despite being a guy, despite being kind of a blowhard, I always have this tremendous empathy for the first wife who stands by these guys while they're new to Hollywood and probably, you know, out all night scrambling to, to become somebody and writing and going off on these shoots where they're away with all these temptations when they're new to the business. And what's the thanks they get 30 years later you get to hear a, you know what a great guy they are now that they've settled down and their priorities are straight you know even like the Affleck thing which I kind of goofed on in the last every time Affleck kind of you know oh he's with Ana de Armas now this must be great for him oh Jennifer Lopez what a great love story with the 20 year loop and it's like what about it like I, it's so uh moralistic I guess to say what about Jennifer Garner what about the daughters but like because they I'm Jennifer Garner's a superstar in her own right sure but I always think like like going back to Clint's family like he had that kid Kyle that he put in Honky Tonk Man I'm sure that kid would have appreciated a reality show here's a show about how great my son Kyle is coming this fall on NBC opposite like you know after amazing stories but no you got to wait till the guys settle down and older and wiser and all these dudes, rock stars, actors, old cowboy actors, and they hit 50 or 60 and they get the new wife who's way more glamorous. And I remember one time, the thing that always stuck with me is I read some Stallone interview where he talked about doing the first couple of Rockies, maybe Paradise Alley, and the wife was so loyal to or the who I don't know if he was married to or whoever the mom of the first kids of Sage and Sergio. We I remember that from being a kid. His kids are Sage and Sergio. This was all part of the Stallone a legend that I knew coming from an Italian family. I was like, what about Sage and Serge? And Sage ends up being in Rocky Five. And, you know, one of the things I read in this article was like, the wife was so doting on Stallone, like, he couldn't really type well, or he'd have the boxing gloves on, so she'd be tight. I don't know, I don't know why he's, I don't know why he's summoning his screenwriting ideas while wearing the gloves, but she'd have to take over the typing. So she'd write, he, he, he would write them longhorn, she'd type out the scripts. And I'm thinking, like, on this, so on uh, Family Stallone, he comes out and he's like, now that I'm 80, I'll at least 75 or something, he's like, I like spending time with the family. I used to like being on the road because every movie was an adventure. But now I like to be close to home with my daughters. And I'm thinking like, well, you got Jennifer Flav, you got the ex-model wife who's super pretty, 
Still, they've been together like 35 years, but she looks 40. And he's got these three babe daughters. And he likes, you know, they're physically beautiful. And he loves staying at home. And he's, you know, he's doting and he's wacky. He's like, look what they get away with. What can I do? And it's a lot of that. And after 10 minutes of this, I was like, no, I'm out. I've seen this. If this were going to be about Stallone doing antics, that would be fine. If it was about Stallone and Frank feuding or something or Stallone taking a dump and wiping his ass with parking tickets I would be all over it but I'm not going to sit here and watch his three daughters who seem super nice I'm not going to watch them do this Kardashian cosplay but the the whole point of the thing to me was like now he's this guy and I'm like the kid Sage from Rocky 5 has passed away but I'm thinking like the first wife must watch this and want to just like you know, fire up the Elmer Fudd double barrel shotgun for him. Because now we all have to sit there and go, wow, Stallone's so mellow. He's so great now. All right, with no further ado, let's get to Rocky V, though. Um, I sort of love Rocky V. It's certainly not my favorite Rocky movie. Even growing up in, like, in the, in you know, as an 80s kid, we would watch these constantly on HBO Cinemax. And 3 and 4 were kind of, at least for kids then, 3 and 4 were kind of where it was at. 4 in particular was just so over the top. And it just seemed, you know, each Rocky movie, I would say, to a very considerable degree, parallels where Stallone was. We know, like, Rocky was written when he was hungry and he was, tra- you know, trying to become a movie star. And he held out, you know, they wanted to buy his script. You know, as the legend goes, they wanted Ryan O'Neill or James Caan or John Voight or some bankable star and he held on to it saying that he had to star in this and it was like the thing that made him and it won you know best picture and um when you get to like rocky 2 it's about sort of his the trappings of fame the newfound fame i would say and it's kind of mirrored you know this was the stallone who would have been making like fist and victory those kind of movies where he was you know finding his way in hollywood but also in you know the temptations of new fame and new money. And there's the great montage at the beginning or the great scenes at the beginning where he's trying to do TV commercials and he's messing up. And like the guys like you've cost us thousands of dollars because you can't read. And we find out he's illiterate and he has to go back to the meat packing plant and scrub the floor with Frank McCray as his boss. And it's so good. And then, um, I love the, 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 for the month and Rocky too, by the way, he's disgusting. He's got on like the worst sweatsuit you've ever seen. He's wearing like the gray classic, like 1979 gray sweatshirt, sweatpants. He must have the worst skid ever. Um, he's got holes. That shirt has holes all over it. And I, I believe even Burgess Meredith makes a lot of uh, comments about how bad he smells in it. And that has such a great training montage when he, you know, the first one is, you know, it would be, it would have been hard to top. But in this one, they add all the kids and the kids chasing them all look like they're like Puerto Rican kids from the electric company in 1979. And they chase him. They go on his morning run with him. And then he starts going faster and faster. And he's leaping over the park benches. He goes into like super Stallone calzone mode and there's that part where you hear that one kid whoever whatever kid that is who looped in the adr there going the kid goes go 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 and he takes off he like blasts off as if stallone just ripped ass like a rocket and he just he leaves all the kids in the dust he starts going like 120 miles an hour on that great I think Bill Butler shot the movie, but that side shot of him just flying past all the kids. It's so rousing. And then three, of course, like the idea of the glad hand for me is like my favorite thing. What God, I am doing a Rocky lightning round, but like the idea of Apollo, his, who was always so, 
so interesting in Rocky one and two and so human and uh, becoming his buddy and becoming his trainer and three, which gives Burt Young a chance to just, just fire off some great racial material that you would not do. And not saying it's great. I'm kidding, but um, he, I, he really goes for it. Like one of the things they soften a lot of the edges as the Rocky movies goes, go on. He's like all cuddly and playing with the robot and for, but Burt Young as the brother-in-law was pretty, pretty much allowed in the first one. And he says a lot of offensive things and, three but three you know you know the uh, apollo taking over as his trainer and everything about clubber lang when we were like i mean that movie came out when i was nine and it would be on hbo all the time when we were all 10 and we'd go to each other's houses and watch clubber lang and i want balboa i want balboa he's like er, er. <laughs> that's the best and when he shows up to talk smack he's got the feather earrings he's talking smack at uh rocky's uh you know the the unveiling of a statue and he tells Talia Shire like come on you want to see a real man come on over to my apartment Clover Lang is just like all class inviting uh, Adrian over to his junior one bedroom in Philly but uh yeah, Rocky three was three and four, man, and four when you couldn't get more over the top than that. It was really in the heart of that like Cold War paranoia mid eighties. Um, you know, gung ho, patriotic, Reagan esque America. You know, you would say like some of those earlier Rockies very much still had that seven, even though it was ultimately around. You think like Rocky one, what did it beat for best picture? It was up against all the president's men and taxi driver and network and movies that have all stood the test of time. But those movies were very much coming out of that, like Vietnam and Watergate malaise. But, you know, and you get into Rocky II and it's still very much a film of the 70s, kind of has that downcast tone and Talia Shire hurts her, whatever she does, it's not a miscarriage, but she injures herself, you know, lifting the world's largest vat of pet food in the pet stomach. Maybe don't try picking up the 280 pound barrel when no one's around, Adrian, but... um but yeah, you get to three and four, and I always thought Rock, uh, Stallone's direction was really good. Obviously, the first one was directed by John G. Avildsen, and he was, you know, he went on to be the Karate Kid guy. Sort of, sort of an irony to this, in that the idea was that when for Rocky Five, as you bring back John G. Avildsen, because he was the gritty, grounded guy from Rocky One. But in the time, in those uh, fourteen years or whatever, John G. Avildsen had become the Karate Kid guy, which was sort of like. Rocky, even more mainstream, even more suburban, gung-ho, patriot, you know, not patriotic, but like, you know what I mean? That sort of mid-80s suburban white kid thing that we all remember collectively as Gen X, whether it was true or not. Like, I always think, like, we put certain amount of, like, rose-colored glasses on growing up then. Like, we remember the the good times and, you know it's kind of forgot like something about Rocky four. When I think about four is like, it's set in that like paranoia about Russia and the nuclear annihilation. And this was when they were making stuff like the day after and red dawn and Rocky four. And a thing that's been forgotten about those, these oh so blissful eighties childhoods is I spent a fair amount of time when I was like 12 and 13 fearing for my life that I was going to get nuked to death. Cause we would go to school in like fifth grade and we'd have to practice hiding under our desk in case, in case Russia dropped the big one outside the uh, elementary school in the North Hills of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I, I was going to be shielded by ducking under the desk. And we had this really, you know, all the teachers, when I think back, were probably so I my principal in fifth, sixth grade, he had a black velvet painting of Reagan behind him. Uh, so much for like separation of, you know, you're not kind of not as a teacher, especially with young 
uh, minds. In, in theory, at least back then, it was like you're not supposed to kind of divulge these things. But the dude had a full on. He sat there like a total hard on, and he had this big ass. We'd I'd have to go to the principal's office, and he'd have this big ass Reagan picture behind him, and he used to make his trapes up and down the hall singing the. Pay- we'd have to do not just the pledge, but we'd have to do the patriotic song, and we'd have to march doing um, Grand Old Flag. That was it. Fifth and sixth grade, we'd do Grand Old Flag of a high flying flag. And one time, one of the teachers, we had a little 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 time to spitball after recess just just he was just riffing going free form and he's like so guys when uh when russia comes to kill us all and i'm like oh this is gonna be good hey dude i'm the, i'm like 11 could we uh lighten this up a little bit and he's like uh when when one of these commies puts a gun to your head, you guys got a pledge to me. You're going to take the bullet. And we're like 11, 12 years old in fifth, sixth grade, what are 10 years old? And he's he's like, you're going to take the bullet. And I'm like, I'm kind of busy trying to be a kid, man. And he's like, you don't want to be a, you know, if they say you want to pledge your allegiance to Russia or do you want to die? You got to be ready to die for your country. And the guy was like that gung ho and that intense about it. And this wasn't even like the gym teacher or some ROTC guy. It was just like the, your garden variety fifth grade goober of a teacher in Pittsburgh. And he wanted us to like write a, write a, you know, like a death oath or something for our country. And I was like, uh, yeah, maybe I don't I was trying to read my Indiana Jones choose your own adventure book. And, uh, I don't know. I'm happy to have grown up in that time, but it's just in so many ways it was a little more morbid than people remember. And I, and I don't think anyone else experienced it at the time. Maybe me just as a, I was like a paranoid kid who was kind of scared of his own shadow. And I remember it being a really jingoistic time and a, a lot of saber rattling with Reagan on the tube, talking smack to the Russians. And I was like, this guy's going to get me nuked before I ever get laid. And I was just always scared. And the other kids in my school didn't seem to find it that way. Like I found that era a little bit menacing. And if I remember the other kids, I like I'm growing up in Pittsburgh, which is like a very um, raw, raw kind of city. You know, they had all the best sports teams, the Steelers, the Pirates. We're number one. And like we're number one was like the rallying cry of Pittsburgh. And it would have been of the nation at that time. We just had this confidence and this patriotism and jingoism and some of that stuff. I don't know. We look back on it nostalgically now, but at the time, I wouldn't say it left me cold, but it just left me scared. Uh, and, I, you know, we had movies like Red Dawn. I mentioned Day After. Uh, there was Invasion USA, which was the Chuck Norris movie where the Russo-Cuban uh, combined militaries invade our shores so they can blow up our shopping malls. And there was, you know, a little bit of that Cold War paranoia and Rocky Four. You know, if not, I mean, I would say probably Top Gun would be the most emblematic movie of that era because it's like a, a war movie set in the height of the Cold War that is completely bloodless, that is 100% positive and makes you feel great. And Tom Cruise is a god. And it's got the pop songs and the sheen. And the only death in the movie that really matters is Anthony Edwards, who's on our side. Like, we don't, much like the Maverick, last year when Maverick came out, everyone complained, like, they don't even name the villains. They didn't, you know, in the original Top Gun. Other than some, you know, they said they were MiGs, and we assume they were Russians, I guess. There isn't even a second's thought paid, let alone lip service, to these pilots that are getting blown out of the sky by Cougar and Merlin and Maverick and Goose and Sundown and Iceman and Slider or whoever else. Um, we don't care. We didn't care. Um, and, you know, that's sort of the way that, that era was. It was very black and white, cut and dry. And like Rocky Four fell in the middle of that era as, you know, the ultimate Cold War showdown between our, our, you know, the Italian stallion, the ultimate meatball versus 
Drago, this ridiculous and cartoonish character. One of the reasons that movie works so well, because it's blunt and it's very silly. And it's, you know, I remember Ebert said like half the time you're you're watching MTV, because of course there's so many training montages and no easy way out. And when, you know, suddenly Moscow is pro Rocky, one of my favorite turnarounds ever. And when you see that one Russian troop pumps his fist, remember this, like right at the moment, I think it's around the moment when they go, suddenly Russia is pro Rocky. You see like one of the, one of the many, you know, the Soviet troops, he's like pumping his this for Rocky, and, you know, within the confines of a kind of a silly movie, like, Drago gives a real, you know, Dolph Lundgren is incredibly menacing in that, and uh, it pays off very well in Creed, too, but, you know, it's a movie of big, you know, bold strokes, and the iconography in it is very silly, but it's so perfect for that era, and, you know, the Uncle, you know, the Uncle Sam shorts, and living in America, contrasted with you know, the, what's his name, Drago getting shot up with the steroids and that very hammy performance by Michael Pataki as his trainer with whatever he hits, he destroys. And Regine Nielsen is this sort of like ice woman, this sort of like ice queen. And uh, the two versus like Rocky still with the permanent, the permanent rolling pin that is Adrian in that movie. Uh, Rocky Four was just big and huge and extremely silly. And... I was probably about as far as you can take Rocky the way it was going. And not long after that, he did uh, Rambo 3, which, who knew, by the way, who knew 30, 35 years later we'd still have to be putting up with any of this shit? Like, like Star Wars, to me, there was a point where I thought it was finite, it was done, it was something of my childhood that I could look back on warmly and it had its moment, and I could move on to the rest of my life. Just like, you know, music to some degree. And then you get old. You know, you're like, oh, I'm still keeping up with music. Remember when we used to listen to hair metal? That was some bullshit. And then you were into Nirvana and whatever came after that. And then you hit about 30, 35, and you retreat. You retreat, what I said, to that cocoon of, like, Top Gun. And, like, I'm suddenly going to see... You know, oh, wow, Poison's coming back to town. I got to see that. I didn't see them 30 years ago. And you get, and that's uh, why the 80s kind of never go away because, you know, much the same, like the boomers, people talk about like the boomer generation and like their stranglehold on movies. And you do think back to like the 80s, every movie had like teenagers listening to like Rock and Robin or uh, take out the papers in the trash, the John Candy sing along with his kid. There was this idea that the 50s were the permanent unifying theme, like Back to the Future, The Heavenly Kid, Porky's, all these movies, you know, this sort of permanent nostalgia for the 50s. And now we're like forever. And the thing is, the 80s one is just seemingly never going away. We're never catching up. But anyway, to catch up to 1990... Let's finally kind of riff about Rocky V. And if I made a big case about the other movies, each sort of occupying the time and space that they were made, both in society at large, or both in America at large, and in the life of Stallone, you got to think back to like what Stallone was in 1990. And I was just saying like Rambo three got kind of ridiculous. Rocky four was certainly ridiculous. And this was for Stallone. This was like a down, a little bit of a, a retreat era where he was, you know, taking it back, you know, and he was, he was trying, I remember he was like trying to be a different Stallone at this time. Like this was Tango and Cash era and Rocky Five, and then shortly after that, Oscar and Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. This was the Stallone with the eyeglasses who was trying to be a little bit less of a meatball, and he would show up doing awful puns and corny Stallone humor anywhere he went. Um, if you've never seen it, 
Um, there was he was trying to be very erudite and mention, he was trying to be very articulate and verbose and witty and you know he's wearing the loop uh, those those wire rim glasses where the bottom loop was a little low and he'd have suspender you know he's basically going around as Ray Tango for a couple years and if you've never seen it watch the Oprah that he was on with Sly and Kurt Russell where they couldn't they're in character still from doing Tango and Cash and they're to prom, they're there to promote Tango and Cash to that audience of horrible Oprah housefrau's who are so in love in particular with Stallone and Kurt figures out almost immediately he's got to play the slob they sort of fall back into Tango and Cash and everything is about how Stallone gets laid Stallone works out Stallone's and meanwhile Kurt's sitting there you got Snake Plissken sitting there a movie star in his own right who's in great shape the best hair ever and a charming dude who's you know, with Goldie Hawn, it was a huge movie star at the time, and it was like, well, this sad sack goes back to Goldie Hawn and eats his Lay's potato chips, and everything, it was, I remember, I associate this, to tie it back to Rocky IV, we talk about the Cold War ending, I remember that this, with the fall of the, 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 the wall coming down in East Berlin, whatever, was around this time that they were promoting Tango and Cash, and for some reason, Oprah brings it up to these two lunkheads, and she's like, do you guys see the Berlin Wall coming down? And Sloan goes, it's the end of communism. <laughs> I was like, I was like it, it didn't register to me until I was until Stallone put the seal of approval. He goes, it was the end of communism. And I was like, whoa, whoa. I, like, I kind of I would hear it in the news, and I was kind of a dumb teenager and didn't really understand all the ramifications of it and the finality of it until uh, Tango and Cash promoting Sly. And they sit there, and there's, like, running gags about how, like, it was some stupid gag about Kurt's, you know, he's not on a, he's not on a diet like me, he eats potato chips. The garbage truck just backs up the food to his house. And, and Kurt's like doing this sign, like, gimme, gimme, like, give me more garbage to eat. It's like, again, dude, come on. You're in, you're in perfect shape. You just happen to be, you just happen to be next to Sloan. He's talking about all the groupies that come after them. And he's like, and they're like, Kurt, you got Goldie. What do you do with the phone numbers? He, he and Sly gives, he goes, he gives them to me. <laughs> They're so cheesy. And then for Rocky Five, the next year, Sly went back. Sans Kurt, which was a bad idea, but he brought Sage, his son, Sage Stallone, who's in Rocky Five, and he brought Sage with him for at least part of the interview. And Stallone is sitting there holding court in like a terrible Arsenio Hall era big ass suit that's maybe like blue purple. He's got the hair slicked back. And the women are cooing and ooing and aahing over every revelation of his sex life and his love life. And uh, I think Sly's even talking talking about painting and stuff. This is like, he's like one of these eras where it's like Sloan's trying to be all, you know, well, he's such a Renaissance man. He's talking about like Edgar Allan Poe and his painting collection and Rembrandt. And the audience is like, Ooh, they're like fanning themselves. And if you've ever wanted to see anything that's dated now in 2023, when what we think of, you know, there's all these people who say like, there's no, you know, real men and like guys are kind of, um, not the masculine ideal they used to be, whatever that woke, whatever that nonsense would be, just try to picture an era where Meatball Stallone in a terrible Arsenio suit is on the Oprah show, and women, these, like, bland housewife-type women, are ooing and aah, and they would be, like, 30 years old, and, like, their ideal guy was Stallone. You know, it reminds me of, like, when the people sexiest used to be, like, Sean Connery. That was always, like, a rallying thing in my mom's generation. Like, there's no one sexier than Sean Connery. And at the time, he was, like, making Medicine Man with a skullet and a ponytail. And he was, like, kind of, it looked like he had, it looked like he had ticks or something. And I was like, really? Like, that hair? He had the Mr. Hooper from uh, Sesame Street hair? And, and that would have been, like, the era... 
<laughs> like Brad Pitt was coming along on the scene and Tom Cruise was the biggest star and Charlie Sheen or whoever else was cool and young and good looking that I was like nope they're no Sean Connery <laughs> you look at him in the untouchables and it's like there he is there's the imagine Sean Connery in the untouchables of the Presidio who looks like he's 97 years old and women or you know women in their 30s or 40s are like that's the sexiest guy right there that's kind of where um, Stallone was in this era he was trying to take it back and Rocky V the idea was to bring it back to the streets make it a little darker a little grimmer I remember if I memory serves I mean I was like 17 when he said he was going to do this he wanted it to have a really dark ending and I interpreted that as like maybe Rocky could die at the end of it and he was going to bring back John G. Avildsen to direct because he had made the first one and Stallone had made all the ones in between and Stallone's directing you know it was I always thought Stallone was a cool director and also kind of unsung in the scope of the 1980s. Like, you think of, like, that style, that MTV style that we always say, like, oh, the British ad guys came, like Adrian Lyne and Alan Parker with The Wall or Ridley Scott with Blade Runner, uh, Flashdance by Adrian Lyne. If you look at, like, Staying Alive, Stallone's directing is kind of right in there. He has His camera's pretty electric. It's always whipping around. Yeah, he's got the star filter going. He's always got that smeary star filter. Where the lights kind of do that, like, starfish pinwheel thing. If you look, going back to, like, Paradise Alley, the, the lights around, the you know, the where they're wrestling and in the spectrum in Rocky II or whatever, um, the lights always have that look. He cuts it pretty good. He had that way of shooting boxing that was interesting, especially in, like, Rocky II, three, where I would call it, like, the when I was a kid, we'd call it the vacuum cleaner noises when he'd do the slow-mo and they do the... Uh, slow motion and then the voices would be all slowed down into like 50% speed and it had that thunderous echo to it and a little bit of a smear and his movies had this you know I'm not saying he's Ridley Scott or Tony Scott or anything by any means but in a way like his movies at least of the 80s had a certain like punchy look that was very much of the times like I happened to watch Staying Alive last month and Flashdance like a couple days apart two movies that go together you know naturally because they're both 1983 movies both dance movies uh they look identical and adrian line is you know obviously a master of mise-en-scene and whatever and then stallone's is kind of right in there um i almost did a podcast about staying alive because i was it has interesting things in it it's a movie that has no defenders nobody likes staying alive but i think is like a snapshot it's a terrible sequel to staying alive uh, to saturday night fever first and foremost it's like almost like blasphemous as a sequel to the edgy things in that movie and how dark it is and um but as a but as a way of continuing tony monero's arc like there are a few things in the movie that i think are good and very italian and uh, it's not an unrealistic way to think of how he might have turned out five years later and what i like about the movie is that sense of the artist's life, which I think Stallone actually kind of nails in that movie, this idea of like going around this early 80s New York doing the audition scene and the big yellow cabs and the teeming streets and he's juggling the two girls and the two girlfriends and um, yeah, I don't know. There's something interesting about staying alive. Rocky V, though, <laughs> he he didn't direct it, though. He wanted Avildsen to come back and as I said, there's a certain uh, it's almost like that that decision doesn't make that much difference. John G. Avildsen was a perfectly decent director, but 1990 John G. Avildsen was not exactly a firebrand filmmaker, I guess. And he's definitely playing by the Stallone playbook here. Uh, you can kind of tell who was in charge. I mean, it's kind of akin to, you know, even though you're bringing back the uh, director of the Oscar, you know, winning original, uh, this one, it kind of feels like, 
you know, it feels like you, I keep slipping and almost saying Stallone directed it. It's kind of like those Clint movies, like in Clint Eastwood's heyday, he would direct the really big ones, most of them. And then once in a while, there was an Any Which Way You Can or a Deadpool that he'd loan out to a Buddy Van Horn or Tightrope with Richard Tuggle. And then you watch it and his whole crew and all his, you know, all his, you know, uh, rep companies in it and the cinematography is the same. The editing style is the same. Um, that's kind of where the direction of this one is. It starts out as sequels used to do in the 80s in that great way where they would show you the highlights of the end of the last movie which I wish they would bring that back it would have come in such handy in those Saw remember there was like a Saw movie Saw 4 where they're like hey remember that, <laughs> that absolutely unremarkable SWAT team guy number 4 from two movies ago well he's the leading man in this and you're like wait what who and like so these little highlight reels uh, and I also think these would have been great I mean I was a kid and I didn't go to that many movies in a th- I did see Rocky 3 in a theater but like it would be great if you were like you were running late at the popcorn counter and you're like oh shit I'm gonna miss the start of my movie and you'd have a little leeway because you'd just be missing the last five minutes of the last movie and as such for the Rocky movies they would show the fight again or the highlights of the fight from the previous movie like you go to see Rocky 2 they show the end of Rocky 1 and so on and here we start with the footage from Rocky 4 but it's been drained of all color it's in black and white and it's no longer rah rah and patriotic and uplifting and they cut out you know uh, the fun and silly stuff and it's very pummeling and the, you really feel the impact of the blows the Drago's blows against Stallone because this is setting us up for the plot of the movie something that was you know silly and cheesy in Rocky IV has become menacing here we didn't even get the fun translator guy from the end of four. Remember four at the end when Slunga says, if I could change, then you could change everybody. And then the, the translator goes, ah, da, 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 da. and everyone would imitate that guy doing the Russian translation. And you went out in the best mood with the hearts on fire, or whatever they play at the end of that. All that's gone. It's stripped down. It's bare. It's primal. He's getting pummeled. And in like five minutes, we're going to find out that Stallone has brain damage from this bout with Drago in uh, Russia. But that's not before he uh, has Avildsen film him taking a shower um, you know, he's banged up and he's battered and he gets the shot where you see Stallone's ass, which to me was one of the most unrelatable things as like an Italian Catholic kid who grew up like this, at least my... I don't know. I was. I don't want to pin this on my parents, but like maybe in the family there was this notion about modesty, and you got to be modest. You got to be modest. You can't be showing off. It was like a big uh, doctrine in the house. And my mom, like if if Sydney Sweeney, she would have no career with my mom in the picture because my mom would throw a blanket on her and send her off to like you know you can't be showing off. It's Stallone or Ryan Reynolds or whoever has a great physique. To me, it's like well you know that thing like if you've got it flaunted and you know if you can pull off the bikini, do it and everything, and people want to look good um we're talking the 80s and so like this was kind of before everyone became a gym rat when it became very common for everybody had to have like the most perfect physique you could ever imagine um and i don't know there was a certain like uh, stallone and schwarzenegger were considered like very kind of arrogant in a way that they would always be showcasing their bodies and stallone a lot of these 80s movies he gives you this gratuitous ass shot well you know whether he's directing or not it could be like first blood where they're they're hosing him down but he's got you gotta make sure you see everything and, and schwarzenegger too you know like the terminator when he arrives butt naked and it's like kind of like it's it's opposing and it's i don't know in this one it's kind of ridiculous the sloan works in the ass shot as he's like groaning and you know he's in agony and he calls for adrian who's in her trademark great mood in this and they get back to philly and everybody's once asked sloan and this is a funny thing about the movie is they get back to philly what does that take a day and a half or something and rocky jr is suddenly like 15 years older so he's like five years older than he was in the last one he's now played by sage sloan uh sloan's real life son who passed 
passed away, RIP. His son died, I think, maybe 2012. And one of the reasons I'm always a little bit surprised, and it's not my place to judge Stallone whatsoever about this, you never know. Maybe it's one of the reasons he doesn't like this movie, is maybe it's too painful to watch. But that would be me, like, you know, projecting something on him. But I'm always, like, kind of, it's strange to me Stallone doesn't love this one just because it's a snapshot of this time and, and with his own son playing his son in the movie. They're basically playing themselves as this poor kid watches his dad become a complete bozo in this as Stallone loses about 150 IQ points out of the gate in this where he just, you know, even before, you know, he gets the, he's going to have the brain damage, but like, Stallone is playing Rocky markedly dumber in this. In every scene, he's back to 1976. You know, as the movies went on, he'd gotten more well-spoken. He had the good the good hair. He had his cobra hair in some of the later ones. But he's they get back to Philly, and, like, he's instantly stupid. And his kid is suddenly, like, I don't know, whatever. I, didn't, I never know how old kids are. But, like, he was the kid with the robot, and now he's a totally different person. And I always think, like, wow, Stallone doesn't even give this one, like, well, it was fun making it with Sage. There's Sage you know, passed away, as I said, but even before that, long before that, he, he never gave this movie any credit. And I would think, you know, take the tragedy out of the picture. I'd always, me not, you know, being a dad or anything, but I would think like if there was a movie where my kid played my kid and I think Sage kind of kicks ass in this movie. He's kind of one of the better things about it, uh, that I would have some emotion about the movie, but <laughs> Stallone's always like, nope, nope, it just sucks. Um, but Sage is the son. He, he wears a Batman shirt at some point in the movie, even though this is two weeks after the events of Rocky IV. Um, and they get back and, like, you know, Rocky's kind of not himself and the reporters are nagging him and Burt Bert Young's got some, you know, bad lines like Talia Shire's there being a drip. And they go, uh, hey, what'd you do over there in Russia? And Burt Young's like, she became fluent in vodka. <laughs> And, and like there's this awful, very regrettable bit where Stallone has to flirt with Adrian, which you, I don't know, it's very off-putting. And he says something like, I'm going to take you upstairs and violate you like a parking meter. <laughs> oh, no. And like Sage has to sit there and wince, listening to his dad rattle off these cheesy lines. And Stallone's instantly wearing like these awful 1990s fashions like this. Remember in uh, Observe and Report where... Uh, Seth Rogen has his big date and he wears that awful quintessential like 1990 whatever that awful look was that 1990 look those kind of like dark colors with a little bit of that vest and the, the mock turtleneck with that chain and I, I don't know he's got awful clothes on and he's putting Sage or you know Rocky Jr. to bed and little uh, Rocky's kind of a horn dog he went from being that little kid with the robot that playful little kid who was cheering on his dad with his buddies in the bedroom and now he's drawn a picture of his teacher's tits and Sloan's like hey what's this he's <laughs> like you, you better not let Adrian see this and then uh, at this moment uh stallone overhears this big fight with uh burt young with uh you know uh burt young burt not burt young but polly and uh adrian are fighting because uh polly has lost rocky all of his money in addition to the brain damage now he's going to be back to square one with his finest you know they're in this big mansion and like an idiot polly trusted some you know power of attorney to some shady guy who invested in real estate and stallone finds this he's like hey what's going on and they have to have a meeting with all rocco's financial advisors and if you watch the movie on account of this podcast first of all god help you but check out the sweater stallone has on in this scene he has a sweater that i can't even figure out what it is 
It looks like a guy maybe dunking a basketball or something. It's a horrible sweater. And we find out that Polly, you know, he gave all Rocky's money to this guy who sunk it into some real estate bullshit scam. And now he's got nothing. And <laughs> right away, the very next scene, I think Stallone is, you know, you'll find out you lose all your money. Oh, and then he has an estate sale. He has to give away all of Rocky's crap. And we see some, you know, things like his, the motorcycle he was driving Adrian around in and Rocky too. Or was that three? Maybe that was three. Yeah, because it was like his beefaroni hair was like blown in the wind and that opening montage where he's with the Muppets and everything. I'm surprised they don't give like the shorts and the trunks and the poster from the first one away. But he has like a Christie's auction at his house and he's immediately getting uh, calls by our real villain of this movie, which someone on uh, Twitter who's way smarter than me. I'm not the biggest. I don't instantly go to Star Wars as my go to for references. But someone pointed out how this movie was like a precursor to the Phantom Menace and the uh, prequels and the arc of those movies where George Washington Duke, who's kind of this Don King stand in who wants to organize this fight with Rocky against Union Kane. Union Kane is his guy, this kind of paper champion who uh, George Washington Duke is again a very thinly veiled. He's Don King. He's got kind of blonde, uh, whitish hair. He's got you know a showman, and he's you know he's larger than life. He's played by Richard uh, Gant, who's very good in the movie. He's like kind of the comedy highlight of the movie. And if you've ever seen him again, it might have been in uh, he was the idiot, <laughs> the morgue attendant guy who reactivates Jason's whatever that primordial glop that Jason was reduced to in the final Friday. And he's like the coroner. And he's poking around with like, hey, what's this? And he reactivates Jason in some ridiculous way that I can't remember. He's also very much the bad um, Phil Morris who played that attorney on Seinfeld. He's kind of a bulkier, heftier version of that guy, and he's so funny in this as this Don King guy who wants to drag Rocky back into boxing. And for a villain, like a lot of great villains, he kind of has a point that Rocky losing all his money and his financial advisors tell him the same thing, set up some bogus champion fights and like, you know, they have to have a million machinations why Stallone's got to hit the streets again. He's like, no, I can't do that. And Talia Shire's got to yell at him, you know, give him the lecture, you know, you could die, Rocky. And meanwhile, we all saw Rocky three. We know he could just call up old Thunderlips for another bullshit, you know, charity event and raise, him, you know, 50 grand or something. But no, he's you know, up in the attic playing around. He finds the old ball and the glove and the, the old glasses. And some, somehow it's still the same prescription from 15 years earlier. And he's got the hat. He whips out the hat. He's like, yeah, it feels pretty comfortable on me. And like, Adrian's like, why do you have to do this? And it's like, yeah, why just cause you lose all your money. Do you have to revert to the person that you were 50, a decade and a half ago? And he puts the old cat lady glasses on Adrian. He's like, Hey, we look pretty good like this. And immediately George Washington Duke is taunting them in the press and in home at their home and he wants to set up you know in a way he is the asshole villain of the movie of course but he could get rocky's money back instantly he's calling adrian in the dead of night and he's like hey adrian do, you, do you'd like that sound she's like what sound george washington duke he's like the sound of the parade passing you by <laughs> he's calling like a psycho to taunt her in the middle of the night because he can't get rocky and rocky's back out on the streets he's you know and he's smoking again which is funny he's got the cigs going like you would just reactivate the cigs after 15 years and start smoking again and even rocky jr is like what, what is, why are you smoking he's like i don't know he's like old habits or something he's hanging out at the gym and sort of like lazily maybe training guys and then into the picture comes tommy gunn and um and tommy gunn is played by tommy morrison a real boxer who was who's passed away since um he passed away maybe about a decade ago and he is ferocious in this movie and one of the things i would say is that he 
kills in this movie. He's amazing and never got any real credit for it because he was a real boxer. He's kind of an oaf and a huckleberry, but he plays it so perfectly as this guy who's a little aw shucks, but with a real chip on his shoulder. And you can see as the as the movie goes on, his little bitterness is toward Rocky. He rolls into town like the new gunfighter in a Western. He wants Rocky to train him. And he comes off as this aw shucks bumpkin from Oklahoma. And then we start seeing a darker and darker side. At the time, I don't think much was thought of this. It was like, oh, it's a you know an athlete playing kind of a version of himself but really he hits a lot of notes in this movie he kind of comes into town into Philly as this you know the young gunfighter and he wants to fall under Stallone's wings he's like hey Rocky can you train me and he's sort of fake aw shucks and becomes more menacing as the movie goes on as we see sort of his pride and his uh you know his need to be the champ and you know he starts to kind of you know even though he's asked Rocky to you know he's kind of using Rocky to get into the game here to work up to being the heavyweight champ that you know he starts to grow a certain bitterness and resentment that Rocky's holding him back because Rocky wants him to do it the slow way and do it his way and train him like Mickey did and George Washington Duke is offering the glitz and the glamour and he's always got some babe that he brings around to impress Tommy Gunn and at the beginning of the movie you know not so much but as it goes on and as the movie goes on we see how Tommy could fall under uh, George Washington Duke's spell I may be getting ahead of myself but to go back to this ridiculous analogy I didn't even come up with this was from a moron in the YouTube comments said this that uh, George Washington Duke is very much Palpatine and that kind of makes uh, Tommy Gunn is, uh, wait, is he, uh, he's kind of Anakin Skywalker and this makes Rocky Obi-Wan Kenobi, if you can think of the prequels. And it's kind of a little bit, I think they said the Union Kane is Count Dooku. And I don't even know who that guy was who played Union Kane. He's sort of... Uh, ineffectual a little bit he mostly exists to be dragged around by George Washington Duke but uh Tommy Gunn he Rocky's like come on down to the gym I'll show you some things and immediately of course the guy's a phenom and Rocky starts taking him home to dinner and sure enough in, in a move we see coming like Rocky starts taking this you know like to go back to the Mickey thing he's become the Mickey and Tommy Gunn he sees as hopefully this can be a new Rocky but we learn over the course of the film Tommy Gunn he doesn't have the same spirit as Rocky he doesn't have the same soul even like Adrian literally tells him that at some point I mean she just spells it out but um yeah, and like, you know, Sly Jr. or Sage is starting to get a little bitter about this oaf who comes around. And there's a scene in this movie. Uh, when I did the John Carpenter podcast, I talked about Roddy Piper's performance in it, how natural he is in that movie. And in they live um and in his book in a book by, about john carpenter called prince of darkness where it's just a lot of interviews carpenter talks about having cast roddy piper in that movie and you wouldn't think you know it's a wrestler and how's he going to nail the acting scenes and there's a part in that movie where with keith david where they're staying in this like ramshackle motel and uh roddy has this roddy piper has this monologue about his dad holding a knife to his neck and everything and carpenter you know that was the big dramatic scene that he had to nail and it was like he did it in one take and carpenter realized he wasn't bullshitting he wasn't acting like that was real that was kind of like a little bit of roddy piper's backstory and at this one dinner scene where uh where they're around the table or something and tommy gunn or tommy morrison talks about his upbringing and how it was and with his dad and stuff and then you realize like it kind of trans transcends acting i'm not saying it's like a literal thing I wouldn't know but it seems like he's very real in that moment it seems like a really tough guy doing this monologue about his background um, and I think that performance is I don't know it's very unsung I don't think anyone gives Sage Stallone or Tommy Morrison enough credit for how good they are in this movie and if you want to watch like there's some crazy interviews with Tommy Morrison toward the end of his career he had a very colorful uh, life and career in the ring and then there was an era where 
you know, he was diagnosed with HIV and then sort of argued that he, those were false positives. And then he would get in to fight in weird places that would have exemptions. I, I don't know the whole story. I don't want to speak, you know, um, you know, authoritatively on something I don't understand, but he would find ways to have a, a fight here and there. And he, toward the end of his career, and I guess there were some other issues in his personal life and stuff. And then you can watch these interviews where he's kind of magnetic. I don't know. I would say he's certainly a character. And uh, he talks about like, you know, there's the experience of making this movie and that there were some guys on the set that were throwing their weight around and he would lay them out. And man, there's, there's parts in this movie where he's either sparring or in the ring later. There's a great montage. Um, and he looks like he's hitting these guys. It's like Tyson hitting a guy. I don't know how they faked it or if they did fake it. He claims there were he was making real contact with some of these dudes. And there's parts in the ring near the end where he's hitting a guy who's flying back like eight feet into the ropes like he got hit by a freight train or something. And you believe it. I mean, either some combination of the performance and Avildsen's directing. Um, yeah, it's, it's like I said, he's just ferocious in this movie. And the one thing that's kind of heartbreaking about this movie is there is... It violates one of my rules, which is I hate when there's a supernatural element in a movie that's not supernatural or has never been supernatural. I don't know that even thinking back to the first four movies as over the top as they could be. And, you know, it's like you see this a lot in TV and, and movies where like someone has a conversation. It's really a dream or it's thoughts in their head, but they for purposes of dr dramatizing it, they have to show you the person talking to a literal ghost or watching a ghost or having an interaction. And you're like in the middle of a fairly terrestrial movie. I, I think if you ever remember the NYPD Blue episode where Sipowitz has a has a vision of Jimmy Smith's in the police locker room and it's so sad and it's so melancholy but you got to think this is like the grittiest New York cop show of that era and you're basically having a supernatural interactive moment with a ghost it's it, like it doesn't happen that real like you could have these thoughts in your head in real life you know what I'm talking about you can see this as a vision but it's not it's, it's literalized so much something that's supernatural in a movie and there's a part in this near the beginning where Rocky's moping he's feeling sorry for himself and it becomes a pivotal moment he goes back to his old gym and he has this vision of Mickey uh, um, training him back in the 70s probably before what is it before the first one or before the second one I guess the first one and Mickey gives him this little speech about when you get old and uh, you know all your friends start dying and like he's like what the hell am I staying around here for or whatever this scene just is it's it breaks every rule for me because it packs a wallop I don't know if it's that it's just some combination of Meredith's acting and the monologue itself and the sad sack vibes and the Bill Conti score and as Stallone's acting and he's watching, you know, he's watching himself being trained, you know, it's, it's in like kind of black and white in the corner where he's being trained by Mickey in the olden days. And he's watching, he's like saying the words along with Mickey as Mickey bestows these cufflinks from Rocky Marciano and, about Rocky Marciano being an angel who look after him and it comes back to slow in the corner he's like you're the angel <laughs> he's talking about Mickey um, and I love the scene also because one time in the early 2000s I had kind of you know it had been about it had been about 10 years maybe since I had seen this movie and I went out I went out uh, to a rock show with a buddy like I was getting to be like almost 30 maybe it was around 30 and I didn't go out anymore and I didn't you know I didn't drink in bars anymore and stuff and uh, this guy wanted to see this rock band I can say who it is because I don't even know who the hell they were 
And I had this buddy at work who was still kind of plugged into like Hollywood. He'd come to be a rocker or something. And he had played guitar a little bit and I played a little guitar, but he wanted, he had come to Hollywood around the time I did and he wanted to be a rock star. And he always still kept on, what was it, like Whiskey A Go-Go and Viper Room and all these places. And I felt like way too old for this stuff. And I was like a dork, basically. If you knew me at 30, I had, it was weird. I would wear like navy blue dockers and a tie and I'd have to go to corporate meetings and I'd have to tag along with the sales guy to like sell our little crappy business and everything and um you know and this other he calls me up this guy's like we gotta go to this rock show tonight and i'm like what are we seeing man he's like there's this band called cheerleader i'm like cheerleader he's like it's called cheerleader man you'll dig it and i have no idea to this day who this band was they were from toronto and these they were like some 19 year old kids doing kind of like punk punk pop punk metal kind of thing and i didn't honestly didn't think they were very good but we went to the whiskey a go-go on the sunset strip to see them and i got super drunk because i mean i didn't get out that much at that point i was like kind of a button-down dork and i'm like man and that had been my dream you know come to la and be part of the scene and we went to the whiskey and then afterwards we went to the rainbow room and this was like 2002 or something 2003 and we're doing the whole like slash duff mckagan tour the strip uh you know early 90s late 80s style so i was like you know living it up i was like I finally, after a decade in Hollywood, I got my chance to go live the dream, man. And we hung out and talked to this band. I got like, again, I don't even know who they were. But we like shot, shot the shit with them for a while, had too many drinks. And then I went to the rainbow, the you know, Roxy or whatever was around at that time. And the dude had to drive me home. And then this hit me like a ton of bricks. Cause I wasn't a big, um, you know, I'm a big beer drinker and I'm a big fatso, but like, you know, whiskey sometimes just lays me out, man. And I went into another dimension and I remember like hanging out the dude's window of his Camaro up and down the sunset strip yelling and stuff. And he's like, dude, we got to get you home. And they, I went to my old shitty apartment in North Hollywood and I'm an enormous lump. And this other dude wasn't that big of a guy. He had to drag me by my collar up the stairs into my apartment and I broke a watch and all this shit. And he's like, dude, we got you home, man. And I passed out on my floor and then around Four 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 thirty in the morning, I like a fucking elephant, like a like a baboon animal or something, just blew it. I mean, this is going to get a little off color, but I kind of, you know, shit my pants basically at four in the morning, like an elephant batch of diarrhea just blasting through my Levi's and <laughs> laying it out all over the carpet of my apartment. And that woke me up instantly. And at that very moment, Rocky five was on Bravo and the Rick, the Mickey scene. And I had to get up and scrub uh, my jeans and the floor and everything while that tinkly Bill Conti music was playing over you know, the sad music by Bill Conti while Mickey's doing his inspirational speech and Stallone's watching and crying in the wings. And when you are that drunk or that hungover and something really sticks with you, like the completely humiliating experience of like washing your own shit off of your jeans at age 30 and... Uh, that music is playing. I think to this day, it's sort of a mixed memory of like, it's a lot of the emotion of Burgess Meredith being brilliant and Stallone and the directing by John G. Avildsen and the fact that I'm remembering scouring diarrhea out of my clothes. But um, that had nothing to do. I thought you might enjoy that. I don't know. But shitting aside, that is probably the part of the movie I think is the best. Um, and we start to get a little bit of like Sage's, or I keep calling him Sage, but he's kind of playing himself. He's watching his dad uh, become a bozo, as I said. And Rocky is spending all his time, you know, especially after he has that little vision of Mickey. He goes all in on training Tommy Gunn, and he's taking Tommy Gunn around and you know doing it the old school way, while Tommy Gunn can watch you know the Flash and the you know the flashiness of the George Washington Duke and the Union Kane stuff. And at the same time, we're seeing Rocky Jr. 
adjust to his new school because you know he's been a rich prick up till he's been a little rich kid and now he has to go to the public school in philly and these two bullies are beating him up for his jacket and one of the kids hilariously is e from entourage you know when your bully is e from entourage i don't know and you're rocky jr i don't know if i'd show my face at school the next day like you're getting your kicked by you're getting your ass kicked by that dude man um yeah, and he's, he's like early uh, E, Kevin Connolly, and he's got kind of a red mullet, and I think he has some kind of earring, and he has this, like, cipher-like fat kid bully, you know, a companion, and he takes, the, you know, Sly Jr.'s, uh, or Rocky Jr.'s jacket, and uh, there's no Johnny Drama, and no Vince, and no, uh, you know, hey, Sloan, hey, Sloan, come on, hey, 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 hey. When I was on a, I was on a Viking quest in 09 where I met Kari Wurr. You know, we don't get the rest of the guys, unfortunately, from Entourage. Uh, Lloyd! Um, but uh, he's a pretty good, you know, Kevin... And there's a great glad hand in here, though, where after kicking his ass and everything, uh, Rocky Jr. finally takes Rocky Sr.'s advice and, lay, you know, lays Kevin Connolly out. He stands up for himself. You know, he was trying to do it, you know, the the good guy, play the nice guy, and then he finally, like, kind of clocks him, and from that point on, they bury the hatchet immediately, like, Kevin Connolly's like, hey, you wanna, you wanna squash this? And they immediately, it's handshakes, and then the next thing you know, Kevin Connolly and the other bully are over for Christmas at Rocky's house, and there's a long Christmas scene in this movie that goes very badly, where uh, Paulie plays as someone, <laughs> he plays Santa Claus, and someone's like, wow, it's a 100-proof Santa, and he comes in all drunk and trying to liven it up and Adrian is sitting there worried in the corner as you know uh, Tommy Gunn you know he was invited for Christmas dinner and and Stallone's like really stupid by this point in the movie he's like hey where's Tommy we invited him for dinner and the kids are all there and they kind of think Rocky's kind of a chump by this point and he's being a dick to Rocky Jr. you know he's, he's taking uh Tommy's side over his own son at this point and Tommy's off having a good old time with uh, George Washington Duke being feted to be his next you know his next fighter and he blows off Christmas dinner and then Rocky Jr. kind of lays into his dad for blowing him off and you're a dick and this and that and there's a million concerned glances from Talia Shire she's like I've seen this coming it's like she's always like the weapon of doom like the angel of doom in all these movies like Talia Shire's got to be the ultimate battle axe and this was the same year as Godfather 3 you know where she's like this Ita horrible Italian widow watching in the wings, doing all the machinations for Michael Corleone and passing out the uh, poison cannolis on Don Alto Bello at the end. If you were Talia Shire in a 1990 movie, you were like the ultimate miserable old Italian widow, just, you know, just giving the rolling pin, hitting Rocky with the frying pan while he just, he, like it finally dawns on him in the scene that he's been kind of a dumbass and neglecting Rocky Jr. and that Tommy's using him, which everyone else has seen come for many reels now. I'd also like, by the way, when George Washington Duke, every time he shows up to kind of flatter Tommy Gunn or to taunt Rocky, in tow he has this guy who's just with him who is Detective Mike Sheehan, I think his name was, and he's like, I used to have to work on all these crappy reality show, true crime and cold case shows, and this guy was like a real New York cop who was somehow part of the Central, Fi Central Park Five investigation, and later in his life he became kind of outspoken about them and... Uh, I just like, why is he in this movie? It's like the Bo Deedle. If you know who Bo Deedle is, he's this guy who was a New York cop and like suddenly was doing Arby's commercials and he's in all the Martin, Martin Scorsese movies. And it's like kind of a weird art. I guess the Dennis Farina, Chicago cop to, uh, you know, amazing supporting actors, kind of the best version of this. And then in very many notches down is Bo Deedle. Uh, remember they made a movie about Bo Deedle and he was played by Stephen Baldwin during, it was called like One Good Cop or One False Move, one of those things. Um, 
And then there's Mike Sheehan or Sheeran or whatever his name is in this. And he just hangs around playing good cop to George Washington Duke's bad cop. It's just like one of the most random people to have a character acting part in this movie. And by this point, Rocky and uh, Tommy have a big blowout in the street because Washington Duke has bought him like a LeBaron or he's gotten him like the rip torn LeBaron from Freddy Got Fingered. He's, you know, he's bought this as an enticement to Tommy Gunn to come train and to come work under him instead of Rocky. And he drives off like, Rocky, whichever do for me and Rocky looks like a big dumbass to his wife and to his kid and everything and even then even after Rocky's been summarily owned by George Washington Duke and Tommy Gunn has walked off driven off in the LeBaron on it might not be a LeBaron it's like a it's like whatever that K car was that wasn't the Reliant or the uh the the uh the Dodge Aries there's the Reliant then there was the Chrysler one maybe that was the LeBaron god whatever it is that's his, his flash ride that he gets from George Washington Duke. And he's got this chick in tow who's always wearing like a feather. She's always wearing like the fur coat with, you know, that's she's got the big 1990 hair, the fur coat, the jewels and everything. It's like, you know, Tommy sold out. You know, he used Rocky to get as far as he could. And now he's going the rest of the way. But even then, after Stallone has been humiliated by this, you know, big country oaf, uh, there's a big fight. <laughs> he has to still watch as Tommy ascends the height. Tommy Gunn ascends the heights. And there is a great montage in this movie. It's the best montage, not of any of the Rocky movies, but certainly in this movie. Um, and it's set to snap. Is it snap? Yeah. One of those, like, remember like the KLF and snap and technotronic around that era of like 89, 90, 91, there was this like canned Euro dance sound of like slightly hip hop, slightly dance music. And they'd always have that black guy doing the, the deep baritone voice rap or it's kind of leaden staccato, like the KLF and snap was one of, they had their big song was I've got, I got the power, which you of course remember that, but this is keep it up by snap, which is in, it's a complete, sound alike if I got the power man I remember like when I when I was like in I guess junior senior that can sound was so big and those songs were on the radio and I think God when I meet other Gen X guys now and they remember the music of 89 and 90 they were so much cooler than I am they they all remember like REM and Jane's Addiction and those are big bands and it, you know, the Pixies and uh, the replacements and all this stuff. The, I don't remember any of that shit because I wasn't that hip. I just remember driving around listening to this garbage wearing like Zubas or like pegged Bugle Boys and like acid wash jeans where you'd peg the... Remember that? You'd peg the ankle. I think there's a second song uh, that's called... What is it? I think it might just be called Go For It, you know, the traditional Rocky slogan. And that's by Joey B. Ellis, whoever that was. But the snap one is this montage where we get to see Tommy Gunn ascend the heights you know he's gonna take on all the it's i love in these rocky movies how how many fights like clubber lang in the third one where it you would think he was having <laughs> those guys really fight once every five days like this stuff kind of takes a while but they, i think they always have like a dozen fights in like six months or something so they can ascend so they're next in line for the for the uh for the belt and we get to watch tommy just laying people out like i said that he's kind of just the guy is like fantastic to watch in this montage and it's set to this ridiculous snap song and in this scene all this is directed by Avildsen and not Stallone the camera's kind of electric in the the cutting in this thing and there's these cutaways in the audience to George Washington Duke glowering seeing his phenom and then you know yelling and Union Kane looking jealous that he's getting one-upped and usurped to be number one in Washington Duke's circle and you just see who got like guy after guy coming after uh, Tommy Gunn and just getting hit so hard he's like halfway flying out of the ring while they're playing that ridiculous song and that song just keeps going on and on and at one point you think it's done and there's a whole new verse to it and it's the camera swings around to George Washington Duke it's cut really well I think that's like a great montage um, and somewhere in the middle of that montage uh, there's a little comedy as Adrian is 
reading the newspapers and seeing Tommy ascend the heights here. And she takes the newspaper and she she's at the pet store with her other hen. And they look at the paper and give it a big old, uh, you know, 70s commercial worthy shrug or little disapproval. And she throws it in the parrot cage to use as newspaper in the bird cage. So the birds can take a shit on Tommy's head. That's how, you know, how much she hates. She really hates this guy from the moment he shows up. But anyway, he gets all the way to the big, uh, you know, the fight against Union Kate and Stallone is watching this on TV and I think if there's one problem with this movie outside of those that great montage I just said there isn't that much ring action in it and this fight the big fight in the movie is conveyed entirely via television with Stallone down in that basement that he's in in Rocky 2 and you know he's hitting the bag he's watching along with Polly and Polly's getting loaded and Rocky I don't know Rocky Jr. has like a new portrait he, I think he's drawn his dad now I want to remember that he's drawn a new set of tits or something he's like dad look I drew a picture of you and they've sort of made amends a little bit after Christmas and Rocky Jr. is like come on dad let's hang out and Rocky is just completely like in the zone watching the fight on the you know little 1982 television he's got down there in that dumpy basement he's watching it and Polly can see that he's blowing off his kids so he's being kind of an asshole and Rocky's like come on Tommy come on Tommy he's like rooting for him and he gets so into it he starts punching along you know and this should be a little more visceral this could have been in the ring this should have been I mean it almost gives the sense that the movie's just a little low budget and cheap and there's I'm sure there's one of the very many reasons people hate this movie is there isn't really boxing ring action in it for any great length of time and we see this fight it, it should be something you know it's not the main fight of the movie but at least we should see it more so in the ring itself in the arena and everything and we watch it on this little crappy television set while Stallone goes he kind of loses all sense of reality and starts punching along like he's still pulling for Tommy so bad it's like they're psychically connected and he's hitting the bag in tandem with Tommy Gunn and Rocky Jr. is watching this disapprovingly and he's like there goes my dad again and at some point as he gives him some little uh, monologue Sage gives a little monologue about remember when you told me to look out for frauds and deceptions dad well there was one right in front of me the whole time and this is the best acting ever and um you know S stallone is so mad about this about seeing oh that i know what it is that sets him off Tommy gives Rocky the hi-hat on national television. He has a chance to do the right thing here. He wins uh, his bout quite easily against Union Kane, and the reporters race in. He's got, you know, they're like, uh, you want to thank anybody? You want to give any special shout-outs? And, you know, back at the house, Rocky's, like, getting ready to take a bow. He's, like, kind of, like, doing a little mugging, a little mugging that kind of says, like, hey, it's the least I could do. And, um... Adrian and uh, Adrian and Rocky Jr. wincing at this, and Polly's giving him the face palm like you don't see this one coming. And Tommy gets up there, you know, he's in the ring and he holds his belt up and he's like, "I want to thank the man who got me here, George Washington Duke." And the whole place starts booing him. The whole place goes nuts, just booing the hell out of him. They've all got signs up that say "Rocky, Rocky's the real champ." Uh, you know, you're just under Rocky's shadow and everything. And Tommy is taken aback by this, you know, because he thought, you know, this is his dream he's the champ now and he's still living under Rocky's shadow to his mind and back at the house Rocky's like crestfallen uh you know he couldn't even get a little a little little special thanks there at the end of the fight nothing and now they're on a collision course with their two egos well not really Stallone like it not really Rocky like he's so dumb I, don't, I think he's just kind of over this at this point and Polly uh Polly's like hey, let's go put our teeth around a couple beers and uh Talia Shire's like yeah you should go I was kind of surprised Adrian lets him go to the bar and also I've never known Rocky in these movies to be a big drinker but he's going down to the dive bar 
and backstage at the fight, you know, they have the press conference and uh, the re- even the reporters are like shading Tommy, telling him, you know, he's, you know, Union Kane wasn't any good. He had a glass jaw. Uh, you know, the real fight would be Tommy versus Rocky. You're still under his, uh, under his, you know, you're still in his shadow. And uh, even Stu Nahan gets in a little dig. He's like, uh, hey, for your next fight, uh, Tommy, why don't you take on the redhead in the front row? I hear she comes cheap. And it's a little dig at his girlfriend. And Tommy's sitting there stewing about all this because all anyone can talk about is Rocky. He is wearing about the worst outfit, talking about bad fashion he's wearing a blue and white kind of like uh, alternating blue and white billowing 1990 fit workout suit jumpsuit with tommy gun on the back very badly uh you know cheesy letters on it and he's wearing a floating uh little caesar's cap his sponsor i guess is little caesar's so when you're done being the heavyweight champion you want to knock back a hot and ready but he's got like a 1990 little caesar's hat on that's like one of those you remember like in 1990 there was like a really white ball cap it reminds me of like something like you'd wear to a van halen show or to a regatta it was just like an all-white cap and it would float really high well he's wearing that like atop his mullet and with his blue jumpsuit he looks ridiculous and uh even like uh, George Washington Duke is kind of, you know, the, the, the gloves are off here, so to speak. George Washington Duke is even telling him, you know, I got you here, but you still would need to beat Rocky. You kind of got here because of the color of your skin, meaning he was a white guy who, whatever that implies, you know, uh, you know, George Washington Duke is just saying all kinds of offensive things to him at this point to rile him up. And now they're going to go out into the night to find Rocky. And I don't even know how they do. I guess, I mean, Rocky in the neighborhood is probably easy easy to find, but he's down drinking with Tommy. He's playing pinball in this, like, dank bar with a bunch of, like, Stallone hack day players. Like, if you know who Tony Munafo is, he's in tons of Stallone movies. He's a guy with a beard who was, uh... He was that disco guy in Nighthawks. We, he goes, uh... They ask if he can hang out, if, if they can hang out in the club, and he's that guy. And uh, so he's one of uh, Rocky's drinking buddies. He's like, hey, what's this, a fighting contest? He's doing, like, bad lines. And outside, in, in a very bad edit, like, Tommy Gunn just starts talking shit. Like, hey, Balboa, you in there? Come on out, man. Let's fight. I, I got a challenge for you. And uh, uh, Burr Young's like, he's got no class. And Tommy Gunn's on the street talking shit. And Rocky's kind of rightfully offended by this. He's like, you know, he thought they were supposed to be brothers. And, you know, he had, you know, he had kind of prioritized uh, Tommy at the expense of his own son. And Tommy doesn't care. He's just down there shouting at him and issuing the challenge. And George Washington Duke's glowering in the back. And uh, Stallone gives him a little monologue. But this guy don't care about you. He don't care about me neither. He just just wants an exhibition. He just wants to, he just wants this fight. He's all in it for the money, of course. And there's like a split second of Tommy kind of like, he's thinking, this through you can kind of see the hamster wheel turning and then no he just starts talking more shit and then Burt Young steps up Polly is like uh, hey kid you got no clothes get out of here and then like uh, uh, what's it? Tommy Gunn takes a cheap shot at Burt Young. He knocks him on his ass, which let's face it, like <laughs> Polly was gonna fall on his ass anyway because he's probably loaded. But this like sends Stallone into full cliffhanger rage mode. He starts looking exactly like he did as Gabe Walker around this point in the movie. But he knocks, except he's wearing a dumb hat at first. But he knocks uh, Polly over, and it's like he's got a loose tooth or something. And Rocky gets up with like the rage mode face, and he's like. You knocked him down. Why don't you try knocking me down? And then they start talking some smack. And he's like, uh, Tommy's like, only in the ring, Rocky, only in the ring, only in the ring. And, you know, Washington Jukes egging it on. And Rocky's like, 
my ring's outside. And here we are. Here's the finale of the movie. And this is why everyone hates this movie is there's, they don't, you know, anything, anything would have been better. They could have had some shitty montage, like gone and trained for 10 more minutes. And Adrian could give him another, uh, lecture about his brain damage. And, you know, then there could have been a half-assed fight. Even if it were the most half-assed ring action of any Rocky movie, I think the fans would have been pretty happy, but instead, no, we have a fight in the, an alleyway. And then it spills out onto the street and it's sort of a three-act structure to the to the bout. You know, they go outside, they take it outside, and um, Rocky kind of immediately kind of lays into him and knocks uh, Tommy into the into the fence somewhere and a bunch of garbage on him, and he he gets up like you know uh, takes care of that. And instead, uh, Tommy hops up, and then it turns into like a wrestling bout, and they're hitting each other with garbage cans like they're uh, James Caan and Johnny Russo throwing each other into dumpsters and stuff. There's like bad wrestling moves and pile drivers and uh, sweeping the leg and stuff. And it's like, what, what? This isn't Rocky. And it's I don't know. I watched it a few times back to uh, just the fight itself to you know kind of talk about it for this. And I think I'm sort of used to it now. It has some funny moments in it, um, but it's it's not really worthy of the two guys. Like with those, you have a killer athlete like Tommy Morrison and a legend like Stallone. And if you know Rocky mode, he's obviously game here to do this. And instead, just have him do this like sloppy street fight that's not even really. A fight that's definitely, you know, you have this fight that's definitely not obeying, like, the classic rules of boxing as they're just slamming each other around in the first, I would say the first round, obviously, Stallone just lays them out. And then when uh, when Tommy Gunn starts fighting back, uh, he kind of jogs something loose in Rocky's head with the brain damage. And the movie, out of nowhere, switches to, like, Oliver Stone hallucinogen uh, native shaman bonkers vision and we start getting these bizarre smash x-ray cuts and all this black and white grain of like lightning and Drago's punches and uh, Mickey going get up get up you son of a bitch and a weird overhead shot of the elevated train above them and it's like where did that come suddenly it's like the the cutting style of like natural born killers uh, before that existed it's like these weird push-ins and like Duke and Drago and Mickey all yelling at Stallone and his head's kind of ringing and by this point the whole town has raced down all of Philadelphia has raced down to watch this it's somehow being broadcast on national TV which cracks me up because this has got to be like a, what 11.30 midnight or something and like the whole nation at rapt attention putting on the local news to watch a bad alley fight between Tommy Gunn and Rocky Balboa uh, Sage is there Rocky Jr. is there and he's like he's like knock that bum out he took my room and when he says that it, the camera's doing this total crazy jitter thing like it's uh, Marlon Wayans and uh, Requiem for a Dream bellowing in between the jail cells. It's like this crazy cutting style that's not really Avildsen style. It's not really uh, Stallone style, and it's pretty ridiculous. And then Stallone gets knocked out. He's, he When he stands up, there's the corniest thing ever where that snap music I was talking about turns into a little bit of the Bill Conti music with this weird shot of whatever the hell the... Philadelphia subway is over like looming over his head I'm like what is this and then the third round is pretty evenly matched you know they're punching each other into cars and shit and um they each get in some good shots and then Stallone's doing a series of jabs and then finally a big old undercut and knocks Tommy into a city bus and then in the weirdest thing the cops just arrest him. like this is weird cutaway shot of the like two Philly cops arresting Tommy Gunn like 
why wouldn't Rocky be getting arrested either? But the whole town's there cheering him on, egging him on, like the, the Padre from Rocky Two who blessed his wedding. Or Remember in Rocky Two, he's running late for the fight, and the priest gives him a little blessing before the fight. Uh, that guy, that kind of looks like Edward James almost now. And uh, George Washington Duke is still watching from the corner of the alley, and he's like, God damn, only in America. And uh, Rocky goes over to give him, you know, and hit him. And he's like, touch me and I'll sue touch me all sue punk and uh stallone hits him so hard it's like a hydraulic lift or something blast george washington duke on top of some very obviously dusty 1981 escape from new york kind of car and he kind of groans and then Stallone goes sue me for what <laughs> oh i also forgot the last thing my favorite thing in the middle of that fight is when they're going at each other tommy and rocky he goes one round tommy one round one round that's my favorite, is the one round. And when they shoot, when he's shot there, he's, like I said, he's in cliffhanger mode and the certitude of the one round. And Tommy's like, Tommy's like, I'm going to knock you into the street, man. I'm going to knock you into the street. He goes, one round. That's my favorite. One round and touch me and I'll sue. And so, you know, Rocky Jr. hugs him. He gets the blessing from the priest. Even Adrian, despite the fact that he might have brain damage now, Adrian's happy. He won his fight because she always hated this guy. And we get a little dissolved to our coda. And in a cute little scene, Rocky's on the steps of Philly at his, uh, you know, his statue. And uh, Sage is there. I don't, it's not really explained why. I think it's like for a class. Something for school, maybe. And Rocky gives him, the, bestows the cufflinks from Mickey. He bestows them to Sage, and they go in. He goes, I never knew they had paintings in here. And that's the end of Rocky V, except for we get a, a horrible song. And horrible songs are a total hallmark of bad mid-'80s Stallone. Like, if you remember, there was that awful Dan Hill uh, song at the end of First Blood, which, I mean, I thought that was bad. But here we get a bona fide superstar doing the end song, and I think it's worse than ever. We get um, Elton, Sir Elton John, with this terrible concoction called Measure of a Man, which isn't making any greatest hits albums, and I don't believe was crooned by Taron Egerton in the uh, Rocket Man movie. It's pure schmaltz. It's absolutely horrible. It's this miserable song that plays over like black and white footage of incidental moments from the first four Rocky movies, and to have landed on, I mean, I mean obviously they got Elton john and he shows up with this they're probably like oh god you gotta you have like a good song and i was i was listening to this i was picturing like frank like coming in going you, you, you uh, slut like uh his song kind of sucks get me in here and i figured like frank probably put in like 20 submissions of every bad song he's ever done and did like three or four new originals like really come on slide come on get me in here somewhere and but they had elton john so what are you gonna do and it's one of the rare times where i think like frank might have knocked it out of the park better than elton john did that's rocky five uh i love talking about it i mean i god I don't mind telling you, I kind of had fun doing this one. I don't know. I don't know if anyone on earth cares about Rocky Five. I would love to talk about more Stallone. Um, you know, obviously, whatever. What would that be? Sixteen years later, he went back to this with Balboa, and he seemed long in the tooth to be doing this here with Five. And Balboa, like I said, it's the one he's really proud of. I haven't revisited that one in a really long time. I I liked it, um, but anyway, we'll save that for another day. I, and then I like, you know, they obviously rebooted it all with Creed. One of my favorite things about the Creed series, which I love, I love the Creed movies. I especially love this last one. I mean, the first one was great. And this one, the, the new one with Jonathan Majors, I mean, I don't know if he's canceled now or what. He's so good in it that I liked him better than Adonis in it. I was rooting for his uh, character and his performance the whole way. But what I love, the arc of the Creed movies that I love is that, like, when Ryan Coogler announced he was going to do that, Michael B. Jordan, 
you had like a new firebrand filmmaker. He had just had Fruitvale Station. Michael B. Jordan is like a star on the rise. And they said they were going to do, you know, the story of Adonis Creed, of Apollo Creed's son. And in doing so, it was going to be a movie, you know, a very, and it was, it was. The first one was for sure. But the idea I thought was to make something that was totally their own and about black masculinity and father and son and, you know, these kind of sophisticated things. And then just a sort of a uh, a courtesy, like you can't transition to this without a little, you know, throwing Rocky a little something, Stallone a little something. And my memory of that, the vision of that as they described it was it was going to be this exciting new, what, again, I love Creed 1, but it was going to be its whole other thing that wasn't going to be Rocky, but they had to get Stallone in there. And then, of course, he ends up like co-writing the movie and there's a whole arc about him. And then by Creed 2, as Stallone so often does, it's just Rocky versus Drago 2, Rocky Jr. versus Drago Jr. And I was like, I thought this was supposed to be the series about like, you know, Michael B. Jordan living up to the legacy of his dad and black masculinity and stuff like this and the stuff with Tessa Thompson. And no, it was like, bring back Drago for the very second movie. And I think for this one, like, they had to find a way, finally, like Michael Michael B. Jordan has slayed the dragon in a way that so many other directors could not. And with three, they finally found a way to get Stallone or Rocky out of there and a way to get Stallone to stop taking over the movies. And they just, you know, gave him the complete brush off, which of course he was really mad about. And that's his thing. I get it. A hundred percent. That's his thing. And he's in some feud with Erwin Winkler. Anyway, we could go on about that all day and I would love to, man, I, I, I could have done this for hours. I could sit here and tell you about death race and paradise alley and, uh, um, victory and uh, fist and rhinestone and I forgot lockup would be in there and over the top one of my horrible favorites and then that 90s era you know when he's daylight is one of my favorites with sage sage is a little part of the beginning of daylight as a as a some sort of jewelry robber and they're out racing the uh what is it in that is it a hurricane no it's a uh god is it an inferno whatever it is they're out racing I can't remember the national disaster I just remember that in the movie Stallone used to work for like the local EMT or something and he's retired and he's like disgraced and he hasn't been at the job in like five years and somehow in the middle of the national or the natural disaster he shows up with the uniform and it says his name in the movie is Kit Latura and he shows up whipping out a uniform that says Latura on it and I'm like how do they still have that five years later <laughs> does he carry that around in his trunk how do you get the Kit Latura I'd love to get that Kit Latura shirt anyway that's been the I don't know if I'll even call this the rock five lightning round it's been like a sort of just random stallone thoughts but i hope they were in any way fun i'm going a little long i'm gonna uh take off here and i hope you enjoy this one and i'd like to do these you know much more frequently and i've had some ideas of things i want to do one of them i've been working on for months is a walter hill lightning round which is just taking a little time but i hope i can get that together for you and maybe something else uh cracks me up or seems worth talking about in the in the interim hopefully i'll get that get that out there hey um so it was fun uh, talking to you i hope this was fun in any way i hope you like stallone i hope you check out rocky five if you haven't uh, seen it a hundred times and um uh, look out for that uh, tommy gun uh, little caesar's hat anyway uh thanks for listening and uh, hey have a good day all right bye